I am thrilled to have the epigeneticist, Dr. Randy Jertle, return to New Frontiers to share groundbreaking, and I mean groundbreaking new research. Uh, he's been turning his attention towards mapping something called the imprint home. And I want you to understand exactly what it is, how we need to think about it, uh, and its involvement through environmental exposures in utero to the development of diseases later in life and even in subsequent generations. So you've heard about the fetal origin of disease. It is probably sourced back to manipulations and changes to the imprint home. Do tune into this podcast with me. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald at New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I would not be here month in and month out for the past six years without the generous support of our sponsors. And I wanna tell you about them and please check out their websites and check their products out. Biotics Research, for over 40 years, the foundation of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. And finally, I want to give a shout out to my friends over at Rupa Health. They make lab testing easy, fabulous, doable for both you, the clinician, and you, the person being prescribed the lab, the patient. Consider using Rupa as just a super, super, super smart solution to all your laboratory needs. Visit them at rupahealth.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I'm very honored excited to be back with Dr. Randy Jurdle. Uh, we're going to be doing a deep dive into epigenetics and his extraordinary work in mapping out the imprint home. You'll learn what that, what that is and why it's incredibly important to us, to our health, to our health span, lifespan, et cetera. Um, but first, let me tell you about him and then we'll, and then we'll jump right into that work. Uh, professor Randy Jurdle was at Duke from 77 to 2012. He's now a professor of epigenetics at North Carolina State University. Jurdle's research in interests are in epigenetics, genomic imprinting, and the fetal origins of disease susceptibility. He's known for his groundbreaking studies linking environmental exposures in early life to the development of adult diseases through changes to the epigenome and for determining the evolutionary origin of genomic imprinting uh, in mammals and the human imprintome. He's published over 200 peer-reviewed articles. He's edited three books. He's received numerous awards, including being nominated for Times Person of the Year Award in 2007, the Linus Appalling Award through the Institute for Functional Medicine, the Alexander Hollander Award. Uh, and there's also a really cool English documentary uh, about his work titled, are you what your mother ate? The Agouti Mouse Study. 
based on his 2023, excuse me, 2003, very famous study uh, that we'll chat about later on. So welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Jodel. It's really fabulous to have you back. And let me just ask you, there you Thank are. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, I always enjoy talking to you either at meetings or here, but well, let's get to the let's get to the heart of the matter. You're sitting in front of a bunch of stuffed animals, you know, and I have I'm very familiar. I've got a, I, I have a five year old at home now and I know you have grandkids, actually. So, you know, stuffed animals are everywhere. But tell me, tell me why these are relevant. <laughs> well, everybody has different things, right? So these actually are they're stuffed animals, but they're stuffed animals, at least the one over here, this one. That's a stuffed animal. That's a platypus, and the one right next to it, which you can. That is so funny. See, that's the echidna. Those are the Ow. only. Those are monotremes, and uh, to determine, we'll get into this, but to determine when the fun, the phenomenon of genomic imprinting evolved, we had to get tissues not only from marsupials and eutherians are easy because they're all over, and we're part of that group, but marsupials are primarily in in Australia as you know except for the opossum which is here in North America but monotremes are only present in in Australia so to look at the evolution and to try to determine when the phenomena of genomic imprinting evolved we had to get monotreme tissue and we did that but once we got into it that this was this is actually I bought this for my daughter but I never gave it back to her when she left home <laughs> That I like so it funny. so much, and the kids, <laughs> my grandkids, like it too because it's a puppet. So yeah. that's why the that's why the stuffed animals. I've got a whole array of different kinds of animals because we used a lot of different animal animal species to look at the evolution of genomic imprinting. God, that's so fascinating. You know, I want to just say random true fact. Isabella and I were looking at an echidna yesterday. We have this book on animals of Australia. And so really? that was our bedtime reading. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're really <laughs> cool animals. They're like porcupines. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't want to mess with these things because they get down. I actually have seen them. They get down in the dirt wow. and, you know, there's these spikes that come yeah. out. Their hairs are really sharp. Yeah. And you can't get, the only soft part is their underbelly and they protect that really well. And the platypus I've seen too, but they're they're nasty too. I mean, the males have poisonous uh, claws on their back legs, I think. I don't know about the front, but you know, they, that's all for protection, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. Yes, we have a little joke, like we'll touch the image of the of, of it on the screen and just go, <laughs> although to, although now that she's five, she was saying, mom, that's just a picture. It doesn't really hurt. You know, they still do it. Mom. Anyway. Well, when you take her down there and see one, she'll see why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this. I And and we will circle back into the, the Agouti Mouse study and kind of sort of where it all began. At least it all began for us. And we started paying attention to your work so much. But talk about this but this genomic imprinting, like define it um, and your work around it. You've since just published, you've mapped, you, you, you and your team have mapped it out. I mean, it's just a huge deal. And I know that you argue we're going to be leaning heavy on evaluating our imprint home to identify disease risk. Like, so I think your this this will be information that will be front and center for us really very soon. So define it and walk us through what it is and, you know, really why we care about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I love this beginning because nobody's ever asked me. I always have these animals behind. You're the only one that actually have ever. I don't know if the only one that noticed it, but the only one that had enough nerve to ask me why I'm sitting in front of stuffed animals. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I got into the. I got into the field of genomic imprinting when I got in was the early 90s. And it's incredible how, wow. you know, that's 30 some years ago now. In fact, we, we'll talk about this is the 20th anniversary this year of the Agouti Mouse study. It, it, was, it was published in 2003. Yeah. And that was published historically, 50, literally 50 years after the structure of DNA was identified. So wow. we published our paper on the 50th anniversary of the identification of the structure of DNA. And the, the epigenome is basically the programs that lie on top of that structure of DNA. So it, it all ties together what? so incredibly, actually. I mean, almost beyond what you would think. Well, let me say this, though, to you, too. Not only is it 50 years post you know, the establishment of DNA structure concurrent to your publication was, you know, identifying the human genome, which was, exactly. you know, and, and everybody was trained on that as the big deal. And your first paper didn't make a ripple. You couldn't even get it published. And now, of right. course, it's the most cited paper in the history of science. So this about face from all things DNA to your work and thinking about the epigenome and 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 yeah, and the I mean the Goody Mouse study and and really in effect tied the programs which were always there but they never were never appreciated yes. and I think it's because they couldn't be studied readily you know a lot of time and effort and still I mean is put into looking at genomic changes but it's really only part of the story I mean I always use the analogy that the computers like the hardware of your computers like the genome and the Epigenome is like the software that runs in these computers. So we have 260 different cell types. So it's like 260 different computers sitting there running all different programs. And that's why you have different cell types because we all came from a single cell, undifferentiated, and then it went in. Well, when you differentiate, you're, you're programming. So yes. that's, that's what's going on. And what we did is we brought the epigenome into the discussion of disease susceptibility. And it's a major one, just like in your computer. I mean, when it goes down, it can go down because of hardware problems and or software problems. And it's the same thing uh, for, for, for us and our, and our health. And on the other way, it can be positive too. I mean, if you optimize your computer and your programs, it's gonna run a heck of a lot better. It just works better. So the analogy works incredibly well because we really are, the cells really are a programmable computer. Getting back though to how I got into it, it wasn't from the Agouti Mouse study. I mean, it, we got into this because of work we were doing at that time on the role of the IGF-2 receptor in cancer formation, specifically liver cancer formation. And we identified it as being a tumor suppressor gene, first immunohistochemically, which was in the early 90s, and then in 1995, genetically, where we showed like Knudsen's two hits, you know, it knocked out both copies. But why is that important? Because in the early 90s, the first genomically imprinted gene was identified by an incredible scientist who's unfortunately now has died. But 
she changed literally my life because she well, discovered the IGF-2 receptor was genomically imprinted. And it's I a like growth factor, is it? In, it's it's, like into, growth factor okay. two. Just, it's also the mannose-6-phosphate receptor. So any um, protein that has M6P moieties will bind onto this receptor primarily for internalization if it's on the outside and degradation of lysosomes, but it's also involved in trafficking of lysosomes. So it has a multitude of, of roles and it activates TGF-beta. So when you lose it, you lose the ability to activate a potent growth inhibitor. And at the same time, you, you lose an ability to degrade a very potent tumor stimulator, which is IGF-2. So you lose two major things, brakes. It's like you cut your brakes and you step your, your accelerator to the floor when you lose the IGF-2 receptor. It plays a role in basically every cancer there is. Wow. Okay, so that so so what did this what what did this scientist like do? Who, who was she and she, she discovered she... this gene to be imprinted, and published the article was published in Nature. So it was the very first genomically imprinted gene identified. And define it was identified, that though. Define it because a, a lot of our yeah, listeners. I'll, I'll, I'll define yeah. it. It was it was published in Nature, and I I was the same thing. I said, "What the heck is this?" I mean, really, I looked at, I, I was looking for everything in the literature for IGF-2 receptor, but I didn't, wasn't looking for everything be, for genomic imprinting or epigenetics because I really didn't appreciate it at all at that time. So I read the paper and what it is, is this, there's a subset of genes in our genome and in all theory, and which is what we show at all theory in mammals, which include marsupials, and they also include us as eutherians but they, it does not include monotremes, the platypus and the echidna and anything that's more ancestral. So it's only present, these genes are only present in therian mammals, which are have placentation and live birth. Any animal that lays an egg doesn't have imprinted genes. So okay. what is it? Imprinted genes are genes that are expressed from only one copy. They're autosomal genes, but even though you inherit one copy from mom and one copy from dad, only one of the copies works. The other one is silenced epigenetically. <laughs> so that's how I get into epigenetics. And it's always from the same parent. So it's parent of origin, monoallelic expression of genes. It's one consistent. So works, one copy doesn't. And it's always depending on the gene. IGF2R, for example, in mice at least, is only expressed from the mother's copy, the copy that's in here always. Whether you're male okay. or female, the one, the copy the mouse gets from their mother works, the one from the father's turned off. IGF2 is expressed only from the father's copy. That's the growth factor. In general, Imprinted genes, if you think about them from their role in cancer, which imprinted genes, probably all of them play some role in some type of cancer because they're growth regulatory. <clears throat> if it's maternally expressed, they tend to be tumor suppressors like IGF-2R. If they're paternally expressed, they're pro-growth and they're called in the tumor world, oncogenic world, oncogenes. So those are the yin and yang between breaks and gas. And that's what they are. So then you ask, well, why would something like, because basically, if you think about this, and this is what amazed me, I said, why? Why evolutionarily would, would Mother Nature turn off a copy of a tumor suppressor gene? I mean, yeah. it, it makes intellectual yeah, 
no sense. And you can't understand it if you think about it from the standpoint of cancer. You can only understand it if you think about it from the standpoint of evolution. Because evolution okay. tries to get all species to the point where they reproduce, but in fact really doesn't care whether they have cancer after that. Yes. And I'm not talking intellectually, but there's no, right. there's no pressure on them to get rid of these genes afterwards because reproduction has occurred and your genes have been passed forward. Yeah. So they're, the rationale for why they evolved is this, and this is only a theory, but it's probably, a, it's a good one. It's interesting. It suggests that it was, it, they evolved because of a genetic battle between literally males and females to control the amount of nutrition that the offspring extracts from the mother, with the father trying to maximize the extraction to further his ability to get his genetic information forward at the expense of all other males. And the mother trying to dampen it down for one reason, actually, because it's all remember in animals that have placentation and live birth. If the fetus grows too large, the mother will die in childbirth and there will be no species. I say that we found that it evolved 150 million years ago. And I always make the comment that's way before C-section. Yeah, right. They would all die. So yeah. it's a balance between males and females to get the most out and to get a, a, in a, a genetic growth advantage, basically. Yeah. And that can only, it makes an important prediction that any animal that lays a hard egg, hard shelled egg will not have imprinted genes because there's no way that a male can get any skin in that game because he cannot determine how much nutrition the mother puts in the yolk sac of that egg. Whereas once placentation occurred, ah, now you can start manipulating physiology and extraction of nutrition through the placenta. And the game began. I wow. think it's probably correct. So we're talking growth regulatory genes. So what does that mean? It means they're involved in metabolism. They're involved in apoptosis. They're going to be involved basically in every cancer that we have. There's no doubt about it. And frankly, they're going to be involved in aging because of the apoptosis part of it. There's, there's, it just now, so the whole thing is then what is our repertoire of imprinted genes? So when this first started, everyone, I think, including at least me, because I was very naive, and I told our lab, we're going to get our whole lab into this field because this is so amazingly important. Mother Nature doesn't do stupid things. It does things that are important. Yeah. As I said, it doesn't, it doesn't use wimpy weapons to do genetic battle. These are incredibly important genes. They're right. more equal than others. And now, because they're only expressed from one copy and one copy is silenced epigenetically, you can now mess this system up by a single hit or a single epigenetic change, which can cause either, it's called loss of imprinting, either mm -hmm. overexpression, which is bad, or yeah. underexpression, which is bad. And usually you'll get divergent diseases occurring at the same genetic location. It's astonishing what this has done. And the other thing we learned as we got into it is every species has a different repertoire. Some are in common, but some are not. It looks like once the phenomena of imprinting 
evolved and the abilities to do so dramatically change the expression of these incredibly important genes, it was literally used then as a mechanism to speciate. And this is why the repertoires are different. I make this point because the human imprintome will not be the same and is not the same as the mouse or the rat or the chimpanzee. So if we want to know the role of imprinting in humans, we have got to know our imprintome. Right. Now, if you're interested in the evolution and while, how, in fact, possibly we even got here evolutionarily, that's an important, interesting question, too. But now you start looking at imprinting in different animals and you see with Venn diagrams, which are here, which aren't that kind of stuff. Yes, and you yes, get yes. A lot of information, I think, about how we literally got on Earth the way we are. Oh, that's fascinating. That's crazy. That's and really it's involved in metabolism. So, I mean, this sure. is the type of stuff, type of work that, you know, nutrition, metabolism. Yeah. Nutrition. Yeah. Well, so in the chronic, chronic I'm diseases, say disease one more thing, and then I'll let you ask all the questions you want. So, we got to this point. We then defined and we got into the field of imprinting by defining when it evolved. But a thing that was always in the back of our mind was can environmental exposures change these imprint regulatory elements. That was our original thought process. It's not what we did ultimately, but that's way we got into the agouti mouse study. We were interested in the regulation of the methylation groups and histone marks in these regions that control the silencing epigenetically of one of these imprinted uh, alleles. Um. Okay, so so 90s, the study comes out, you're interested in the insulin-like growth factor 2 receptor. You see that, you know, you learn that one of them is completely inhibited. I guess it's maternally inhibited, right? Well, it's maternally. Yeah, it, depends, it depends on the gene. IGF-2, okay. for example, the, the, the mother's copy is inhibited and the father's copy, copy is on. Yeah, it looks, right. It's right around 50%. It's not quite, I don't remember which okay. way it's skewed, but it's around 50-50, which is what you would expect if mom and males and females are yin and yang in each other, they're going to pick genes. If this, if, if it's pro-growth in the father, the mother's going to find something to, to counter to ramp it down, right? To ramp it down so that she can give birth. <laughs> yeah, that's really extraordinarily interesting. Um, and so you were wondering, so you began to wonder whether or not these were environmentally manipulate yeah or are they labile and yeah so i mean we we know now that we can influence dna methylation i mean that has in, in adults that's been and my my focus of, of research um so that so that question can, you you started to think about the environmental influence on the epigenome like way back way back in the day <laughs> that's, that's no so no way, i think way before I mean, people were thinking about environment but it was almost like if you think about it and read the literature, it was like it was magic. You would say, well, 50% or 30% is genomic and the rest is environmental. And then what people that were working with the genetics would just blow off the environmental because yeah. they had no idea what the hell environmental meant. I mean, what's, yeah. in, what's environmental? I mean, at some point it has got to impinge upon the expression of a gene. Yes. Right? Or it's yes. mutation. I mean, it, right. it, those are the those are the two things going right. on. The but expression or all of the work was done with mutations to the genome. Right, and right, right. None of it was done. Nothing was being yeah. done. Yeah, even thought about actually. 
about the role of imprint, not imprinting, but epigenetics and programming. The software, the software. The software, right. The software was completely discarded. I mean, you know, Moshe Seth yep. has been on my podcast and he's been, you know, he's just been a, a amazing mentor for me. And I, he, he was thinking, he was in the world of epigenetics, you know, at the same time. And yeah, it was almost a bad word. Like, like well, software he, was not cool. He actually cool. was even in it sooner than I was because he was in it through the, the it started in the cancer field where people, yeah. P, it started actually with P16 in a way, where P16 was shown to be epigenetically silenced by methylation in the promoter region. I won't get, it's an interesting story already, but he was in that field of cancer biology and he was actually told that if he, it, he would if he stayed in this field in cancer that he would he would have no no future <laughs> because everybody knows that cancer is a genetic disease that's what yeah. he was told right uh, totally, so interesting totally wrong yeah well thank god that you both per per persevered because obviously now he's one of the highest regarded epigeneticists um but you okay. wonder whether he's still a high, whether we're the highest regarded scientist. You know, have we made that transition yet? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would at think at some so. point we are going to. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, um, we, so we want to move over into thinking about environment, like this black box. So it's 2003. The human genome is getting mapped out. All eyes are on the Rosetta Stone that, you know, it's going to be one mutation associated with one disease or, you know, we really expected to have all the answers when the human genome was mapped. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't know, you can speak to this better than, than I, but I just, I project that it must have been disappointing to some of those scientists to realize, in fact, the answers weren't there you know, other than the most, there's clearly, obviously, you know, genetic, very genetically driven conditions, but uh, the chronic diseases that we're grappling with that I treat in my clinic and, you know, that it, it is pulling us down as, as, a, as a world, uh, we, we couldn't address those genetically. And then along come you and your postdoc, uh, Waterland, looking at the agouti mouse model, where in pregnant dams, you introduced a methylation cocktail of common nutrients, folate, B12, right. choline, and betaine, and you turned off a gene. I mean, that's why, like, I think time kind of stood still for anybody who was paying attention, but eventually time really stood still with that paper because you completely changed the phenotype of this mouse model. So they're blonde and obese, and you inhibited the gene with garden variety nutrients and completely changed phenotypic expression, what they looked like, and actually their health, um, exactly, their health because journey. If they're yellow because of the way this system works, they will get obese, they become obese, get diabetes, and ultimately because of that, they have an increased incidence of cancer formation. They're absolutely one-to-one -one related. Well, let me say this, and then I want to hear about, you know, I want you to bridge this to the imprint home. So other scientists picked your work up and showed, I know that you looked at the response to generation zero. So this methylation diet, generation zero, nothing outrageous, no drugs. These are, these are nutrients you get in your food and it influenced gene expression for five generations. I mean, I think according to labs that picked up and followed it, five generations. Right. Now, I don't know about I don't know if nutrition does it, but surely exposures to different uh, environmental toxicants 
did that. Well, isn't it isn't it true though that some people picked up your used that um, betaine, choline, folate, B12 cocktail in generation zero and tracked changes to the agouti gene for five generations out? I think they did, but I don't keep up too much with that. Okay. It, it's, I'm, I'm lucky I can keep focused on one generation, but there's, <laughs> there's, little, there's little doubt now that, at least in my mind, that there is transgenerational inheritance of epigenetic marks and exactly what those marks are going to be and that type of thing is going to be worked out in the future. I don't think this is a this is no longer just a, uh, a hypothesis. I think it's mm -hmm. it's definitely there. Yeah. But yeah. I I don't do research in that area. It's very difficult, as you can imagine, because you're talking about you know keeping track of things for three and four and five generations, and in humans that's very very hard because we don't have really good model systems for that. Yeah. But it's gonna it's gonna happen. It's just gonna take more time. And once the better idea of the mechanisms by which this happens, it will become more and more acceptable. The same thing really with the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility. If you look at that historically, that was the Barker hypothesis. And they were yes, working. David Barker. That's what it was called. Yeah. Frankly, I like the name better than Dohad. I mean, I I like named I like human names attached to things because it gives you a better idea of who did the original work. But Anyway, I mean, looking at um, at people that survived the um, Dutch hunger at the end of World War II and clearly showed epidemiologically that they had increased incidence, the offspring now that were exposed to re greatly reduced food. The mother was didn't have any food, was starving probably yep. during that first trimester was very, very critical in in sort of setting up the health trajectory of her offsprings and then the next generation they were born into sort of a land of plenty so they could go back to eating normally or even getting more food than they normally had because it was getting into better times and these people then ultimately became obese got diabetes a doubling of the of the neurological disorder of schizophrenia this was reproduced in china with in the 1950s where they had you know a huge uh problems and failures of crops during that period of time and a lot of hunger and starvation again same kinds types of results occurred so but yet it didn't get a lot of traction Kara and I the reason for that is this it's really interesting it's very simple there is no known mechanism by which this can occur there's one word in there that is very very important known yeah that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just not known at the time. And unless you have a mechanism that you can layer this thing onto, it just doesn't get traction. And it's going to be the same thing for the transgenerational. Once it becomes clear what the mechanisms for this are, for these epigenetic inheritance that we're seeing epidemiologically and through lots of experiments, then it'll all fall into place again, just like it did with our Goody Mouse model. I mean, it is epigenetic. If you look at the literature before 2003, there was not the use of epigenetics once in the literature of the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility. It was Amazing. never, ever, ever talked about. After 2003, I don't think there's a paper published that doesn't say this is the mechanism for it. Yeah. Well, it and they really changed everything. Yeah. It's incredible, actually. 
it is astonishing. There's a mechanism now. You can see yeah. the mechanism is epi, epigenetic. And I said, we don't know what the epigenetic changes are in that animal. We know we followed one and there is going to be a whole bunch So beyond of, the agouti gene, beyond yeah, hypermethylating the, the agouti gene, there's all sorts of secondary oh, influences. Yeah. Complex problems need comprehensive solutions. The Dutch clinical team created the Mastering Functional Hormone Testing Course to help you elevate your practice. Learn to decode and interpret Dutch test results with confidence, empowering you to effectively address your patient's complex hormone problems. Don't miss this opportunity to enhance your expertise and transform your patient care. Sign up now and unlock the secrets of functional hormone testing by visiting education.dutchtest.com. Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I have a question for you. How much time do you spend ordering functional lab tests for your patients? I bet it's a lot. Ordering from multiple lab companies for hundreds of patients can quickly turn into hours of admin time. But there's a new way to order lab tests I'm excited to share with you. Rupa Health is a tool that lets you order from over 30 specialty labs in a single portal. You can order all the tests you normally do from companies like Dutch, Vibrant, Genova, and Great Plains, and so many more. Imagine you're ordering a hormone panel for a patient that includes tests from three different labs. You have to log onto three different websites, place separate orders, come back weeks later to check on tracking numbers, download results, et cetera, et cetera. Rupa eliminates all of that by having all ordering, tracking results in a single place, and they also order, handle invoicing, uh, tracking shipments, automated follow-ups, personalized instructions for completing tests, and much more. The best part about Rupa is that it is free for you. Go to rupahealth.com, that's R-U-P-A health.com, and join a live demo or sign up to see how it works. Now let's get back to today's show. Yeah, and you would have to be. That, they have to be, and those are the ones that alter in humans that vary in disease susceptibilities. It's not the agouti gene. The agouti gene was just a model system for showing that DNA methylation was linked absolutely to a phenotypic change and change in disease susceptibility in the offspring in adulthood. It has to have incredibly broad influence. Change, well, obviously changing methylation pattern of the Goody gene is you know, influencing. Well, it's like, it, it, I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's influencing the, the imprint ohm because it's, influ it's influencing all the things that you're attaching the imprint on too, like cardiovascular disease, obesity, you know, metabolic fitness, all of that. I mean, is that true? Well, we'll it does seem <laughs> to be true, but we'll be able to see it better now that we know the human imprint on. So here we were. So epidemiology in humans and animal models, you can control things. You can look at stuff a lot easier. In humans, it's very difficult because yeah. we can't, when we do a study and we're interested, in fact, let's say we're interested in the role of epigenetics or imprinting in, in um, autism or, or, yes. or Alzheimer's disease, which is what we're working on right now. We can't go in and drill a hole in a person's head and 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 look for get a brain sample and and look at the DNA methylation. All we all epidemiologists have basically are buckle swabs, 
and and uh, white cell, white blood cells yeah. really are the primary ones. I suppose they could get skin cells and things like this, but you know you can't get often samples from the organs that are giving you the problems, disease-wise, and look at the role of epigenetics directly in those. So that's always been a a, a limitation of the epidemiology type epigenetics research. But it's not a limitation when you're talking about genomic imprinting. That's what's so exciting about it. And talk about why, just to, to define Because that. the imprints actually come in from the gametes differently marked. That's why you get the parent of origin dependent expression. So they come in from the egg and the sperm. One copy is methylated. Let's say the mother's copy is methylated. At the exact same genetic location, the mother's copy is not methylated. So if you look at and just grind up tissues and look at the methylation at that region, that imprint control region, it will look like it's 50% methylated, which is oxymoronic because you can't have half methylation. It, what it is, is half the alleles are methylated. Let's say in this case, the ones that come in from the egg and the ones that came in from the sperm have no methylation at all. You put them together. I used to do this when I talk, I said, okay, if you add 100 plus a zero and divide it by two, what do you get? 50. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what you see. <laughs> that every one of these imprint regulatory elements, you have 50% methylation. And since they're inherited, you have 50% methylation at, in every tissue in the body. Right unless they're goofed up right. early on. And that's the only thing we're looking at early on. So how can that happen? Well, you think about it, when the two the gametes come together, there's yes. a global demethylation that occurs. Right. The imprint regulatory elements have to be protected from that because if you knock the methylation marks off of there, you cannot get monoallelic expression in a parent of origin dependent manner. So there are proteins that come in and protect it. If the protection doesn't occur early, they're messed up. So they're no longer 50%, but right. they're no longer 50% at the earliest stage of development. And you'll be able to see that problem in every cell in your body. That right. means if there's deregulation of an imprinted gene, either up or down from the 50% level, that's giving rise epidemiologically, let's say to schizophrenia or the Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. You should be able to see that and have to be able Any to specimen. see that in every tissue in your body. So saliva would work or a skin cell would work or. Exactly. And particularly if you look at different germ layers, so buccal swabs and white cells, I believe are in two, two different germ layers. If you see the same thing there, in both germ layers, that's important because these are surrogates basically for tissues from the very earliest stage of development. There's only three germ layers. So if you had another sample that we have brain, liver, kidney, and that covers them all. So if you look at our imprint tone paper, it's really incredible. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, to me anyway, because I've been thinking about this for 20 some years that we, we yeah. wanted to do this, but we couldn't pull it off for various reasons that were dependent upon the timing. One time we couldn't do it because you couldn't physically do it. The other time we didn't have the money to do it, you know, and I thought it's it, we're not gonna be able to do it. And finally we got it all together and we were able to finally get it done. 
but it's absolutely beautiful, Kara. I mean, when you look down these imprint control regions, look down, liver, kidney, brain, 50, 50, 50. Look at the sperm, zero. Look at the human oocyte, 100. Mm -hmm. The fingerprint of an imprint regulatory element. If that's out of whack, you have trouble. And I mean major trouble. Mother nature does not pick wimpy genes to do genetic battle like she's done with these imprinted genes. These are incredibly important. Right. They're more equal than others. And we'll list just for people listening, we'll we'll link to the paper and you can actually go through the genes you and, and you'll 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 recognize some of them, like the fox, the fox genes and yeah. um, you know, what else was I looking at? Well, the insulin like growth factor and what you can do, and it's fun to do it, actually, I recommend anybody that's listening to this just, just for their own, their own enjoyment, whatever disease you're interested in, you can get in, you know, through NCBI and through gene cards, you can get a list of genes that are showing up over and over and over and over again, a, a link to, let's say, Alzheimer's disease or schizophrenia or, or any, any, I mean, absolute, absolute anything that we have, you can look at the potential role of imprinting in its development. That you can do now. And you can do it in silico. So you get all these genes and you see now you cross and you do a Venn diagram with the known ICRs. Now they're not all gonna be imprinted, but a goodly number of them are gonna be imprinted. And you'll see already a, a, a kind of a story of the imprinted genes that are potentially involved in whatever disease or disorder that you're interested in. So the well, next thing is, how do you do this experimentally to confirm what you see in silico? Let me, and well, I, and fold into that. So I think our audience, mostly functional medicine clinicians are, you know, waiting to talk about how this is influenced. I mean, and probably a lot of them already have an idea. How is this, how is the disease process happening at this very early, early stage? I mean, we can look at your agouti mouse study and see that you radically influenced gene expression. You radically influenced methylation patterns early on. So I'm assuming this is, this is the rubber meets the road where environment is most influential. Right. And that's why the early, early, Time points are so critical. It's not that you can't change them later in adulthood too, but now you've got a lot of cells. So there could be enough cells that are still good that you won't see a disease phenotype. If you alter something back at the early stages, you're either going to get a yellow animal, which means that that change had, had to occur literally at probably the one or two cell stage. Otherwise you won't have a yellow animal. You'll have some modeling occurring, which is what the primarily is. And that's some are turned off, some are turned on. And depending on how much of those things, those cells are growing and involved in the different tissues that can affect disease susceptibility. Uh, but if it's very early in the embryonic stem cells, um, you're gonna be able to see those changes in every cell type in your body, particularly if it's very early. And, and, and that's, that's that's what you'll be looking for. So you want to see genes that are altered in their methylation patterns, the ICRs that are altered in the methylation patterns, you know, significantly so that you can actually see it, irrespective, basically, of the tissue type that you're looking at. Those are good candidate genes. So now you've got candidate genes. 
but then you still have to do a lot of other biology around that. But at least you know where you're looking finally. We, but now we don't have any clue. And you can do this from blood samples, which means epidemiologists can now actually do experiments again. That means something. Otherwise, before, you're just giving methylation levels and nobody knows what the heck they mean. It's very difficult unless you're looking at white fat or brown fat, or you know, you're in the cell type that would be involved in whatever your intro or pancreatic cells, you know, for diabetes, let's say, and you, you most times you can't get those cell types. So this is the place to start. It's not necessarily where you'll end, but it's where you're going to start because people are not going to argue with you about the importance of these genes. Evolution has told me they're important. Right. You're not going to be able to argue about the fact that, you know, they're going to have variations between tissue types because these things are so early that there is no variation. You're still in the embryonic stem cells. Right. And they're being altered. There's another way that this can happen. I don't want to get too much into it, but there's there's not only the inherited, but some of the these inherited marks actually set up secondary marks or somatic marks. If those are screwed up, now you'll have imprinted gene regulations that are messed up again, but still very, very early in the embryonic stem cells. Anything yeah. that happens outside of that, we will not be able to look at that. And frankly, I personally don't care because there's enough, enough information here to keep us going for a long time. Right, right. So looking at methylation patterns on different on different genes, the influence is less interesting than focused focusing to specifically me. on the imprintome. And I'm not saying yeah. they're not important. Some of these are going to be incredibly important. Right. But when you're trying to start and show that there's a, a, a correlate a, in humans, a strong correlation between alterations in imprint regulatory elements and disease type, or, you've got to be looking at something like this so that you have samples that you can monitor easily mm -hmm. and genes that you know are absolutely important in development and disease formation. Yes. So I guess I mean, this. so the door is open. So now that you've identified the imprintome and there's almost 1500 genes that you've identified, then it come, Then it, it seems to me like you want to begin to study different cohorts to see what it looks like. Like, for instance, what's the imprintome look like in really healthy centenarians? You know, right. what is that? Is I, think that... <laughs> I think it's, in fact, I mean, we we interact with, with True Diagnostics and, and yeah. Ryan Smith because I was talking to Lucia Aronica about this mm -hmm. one because I give a course to in one of her courses. And I said, you know, I my guess is that we will be able to be we'll be able to do better at determining basically biological lifespan than being done right now, which is empirical if you think about it, because you just sort of randomly, maybe not randomly, but you're just taking CPG sites all over and there's surrogates for the CPG sites that might actually be causing the disease problem, which many of these are going to be imprinted. So right. if we use the imprint home ICRs to do this, my guess is that we're going to be able to more accurately determine biological lifespan and maybe even be able to show if you do this reversals of this. I don't know if it's possible, but you can look at it and and um, even determine maybe which genes are giving rise more to aging than others. I don't know if there's such genes available at present, but my guess is they probably there are going to be some imprinted genes that are heavily linked to aging. I don't know what they are. It's never been done. 
Well, I mean, certainly we know just because, you know, the tumor suppressor, I mean, if you look at the aging genome, aside from the epigenetic clocks, you see exactly what you've just described, the yin and the yang between men, the male and the female, um, tumor suppressor. So as we age, tumor suppressor genes are hypermethylated and inhibited. I mean, that's just fundamental to, you know, the cancer pathogenic mechanism, I think across the board. Well, actually, let me say, actually, let me say this, restate that. So in the aging journey, tumor suppressor genes are inhibited. This is something that actually got me really interested in epigenetics in the first place. We turn off tumor suppressor genes, which we increase our vulnerability to cancer. Um, and then the oncogenes are turned on. So it's almost like the original imprintome that you described, that tension that it, it sort of happens in this reverse you know, unfavorable way for us on the, in the aging journey, tumor suppressor genes are, are, are shut off, oncogenes are on. That's what aging looks like at the epigenetic but, level, but also does, but in, in cancer, but in but cancer, in cancer well. there's something even more fundamentally important. So I just did, this is all in silico now, but it's an interesting little study. This is, so I looked at breast, prostate, uh, liver, glioblastomas for brain cancer and colon cancer. It's epigenetically involved. It's shown. So five different cancers. So you can ask again, you go to you go to NCBI and gene cards and, blah, 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 and ask which genes are, are imprinted in those. And then you overlap them. You do Venn diagrams on them. So the important thing here is this. Are there genes that are in common for all five cancers? And indeed, there are. There are 28. Wow. 28. And they're heavily involved in maintenance of cell life, apoptosis formation, which is exactly what you would expect. So these are imprinted genes, potentially, that are involved yeah. in regulating apoptotic function. If a cell cannot die, it can now gain the additional oncogenic and loss of tumor suppressors that you're talking about later in the development of the cancer and not croak. But the fundamental thing that has to happen is they have to have an ability to not die when that happens. So those fundamentally imprinted genes are involved to a great degree in apoptotic pathways. So you and would I know, are, I now yeah. know them. Now, are they correct? I don't know, but now we can start screening and actually determine them experimentally. And I'm telling you, it's not going to take long before we start learning a lot about right. the earliest stages of cancer formation. We're just, we're talking about, in effect, setting you up on a pathway to actually getting cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So who's most vulnerable? And you it, would be able to identify this. You'd be able to identify But well, not just cancer. I mean, I, like really any chronic disease or developmental yeah. disease. I mean, you. I, I, I think that's what you've you've spoken about in your work. That. But this we, is cancer in general. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I. I don't know, but when you start doing this. It, it, and but I mean, it could just world. be disease in general, right? Yeah. Could could you back out and say not just cancer in general, but no, any disease. disease. I say I I published. I mean, I reported it, and I think as people are going to think it's crazy, but it's not. 
I said, now we can actually now systematically determine the role of genomic imprinting in every human disease and disorder that we have, period, all of them. Yeah. You just have to have the appropriate samples. Do you think that there'll be equal weight? Some will be- I don't know. Yeah, okay. See, this is the interesting thing. So are there gonna be genes that pop out over and over and over again? Or are they gonna be, I, I don't know, but I think we're gonna, within the next 10 years, and I might not be here in the next 10 years, but within the next 10 years, we're going to know a lot more about that question than we do right now, because we know virtually nothing right now. But we're on the first rung of the ladder because we have just now have the human imprint home chip. Now, it's not ver it's version one. It, it covers, I think, about 1100 ICRs of the 1400. Whether we're missing the most important, I don't know, but we'll keep working on that. And we will keep working on determining if we can develop sequencing technologies to be able to assess all of those ICRs at one time. And the other thing that has to be done, and we're, we're also into the, doing that now, is sequence better the human oocyte methylome. We, sperm was not a problem, as you could imagine. No problem. We've got great data there, but human oocytes are really, really valuable. And we now are in the process of doing that. Once that's done, assuming we can pull that off, we will be able to determine which of these ICRs truly are 100% and 0% at the gamete level. Now we could only determine that for 300 of the genes with the data, the weak data that we have right now on human oocyte methylome data. We hope to improve that, and that will enhance and increase the number of ICRs that have a very, very good probability of being involved as imprint regulatory elements. How then, I guess I have two huge questions then. Um, I mean, if you're looking at, if you're looking at zero and 100, how can environment alter it so that you're then susceptible to, to disease. Um, if it's always zero and 100, like how, where does, how does the disease phenomena root during this time? Well, what it ha it's called loss of imprinting. So there is- so what you changes. have is that you need, you need one copy and one copy only functional. Right. It's a teeter-totter. So you might have- You're a sitting bit of like this balance. I mean, teetering. If you have no methylation, you lost, and it goes this way, and you get one right. set of diseases, literally. On the other side, remember, now you have 100% methylation, which will cause right. a diametrically opposed disease and disorders at the same location. Yes. And then, and then it's it's gradation. So you're gonna so you're identifying. No, it won't be de it won't be gradations. It could be degradations if you're talking about multiple cell proliferations before the decisions are made. But these are coming in like this. But it could be something like that. But more than likely, you're going to see ding ding all too on too much on too much off, off either balanced or too much on too much off. On or off, I guess, not too much, just on or off. And if it goes for a while before, still during the embryonic stem cell stage, you will get skewing towards one side or skewing towards the other side. So some are fine and some aren't. If enough of them are fine, then the person will be normal. 
If not, they have problems. Now you'll be a mosaic. It's like it's kind of like females on the X chromosome. You know, females are mosaics. Sometimes you can see that, you know, the colors of their skin, you know, the eye color, all that kind of stuff shows up. Sometimes people have trouble, sometimes there's not any problems. Um so in the environmental influence during this time, like what can play what 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 can skew it? Well, nutrition might be able to do it. For sure, right. Because otherwise we wouldn't have these problems with, uh, it's severe. I mean, if you think about this, this is another thing that's interesting. So what do you get when you have a severe lack of food in the first trimester? If the mother has a, is starving, what kind of neurological disorder do you get? Schizophrenia. Well, yeah, schiz well, and cardiovascular disease. And yeah, but I mean, I'm talking neurological disorder, schizophrenia. Yeah. We don't have starvation right now. We have an overabundance of calories. So what are we showing up right now? The diametrically opposed neurological disorder, which is autism. Oh, interesting. Wow. See, I think if you're interested in this, there's a book written by uh, Christopher Badcock called The Imprinted Brain. Makes the case that when you have too much paternally expressed versus maternally expressed, you get gives rise to autism. And the other way around, if you have too much maternally expressed genes relative to paternal, you get schizophrenia. In this theory, then, schizophrenia and autism are, are the antithesis of each other, and every other neurological disorder fits in between these two. So it's basically just like an agouti mouse model, and you skew things one way or another, literally by what type of nutrition and level of nutrition the mother has when you're in utero. You're just so, jamming the distribution one direction versus another direction. I don't know if it's true, but it's now testable, potentially. <laughs> right. Well, and yeah, and you could evolve the the hypothesis. I mean, but we know though that the that that methylation patterns are inherited from dad. I mean, is it all about early nutrition in mom, or that information is coming? No, no from it dad? could I mean, be either we... way. I just, I just, it's maternal paternally imprinted genes, and they're being pushed one way or another. And that then gives rise to disease susceptibilities. And we'll know about this once we start screening. We haven't done anything yet. Well, you have looked at Alzheimer's. Can you talk about that? I know that's in peer review now. Well, it is not published yet. So this is just the, be the beginnings of it. This, this actually isn't our real data. And we're not using the imprintome chip. We're, we're sequencing it. So we determine the methylomes. And this is work that Catherine Hoyo been doing in her lab and and uh and a graduate student that she's work working with shebnam uh Savik, i think is how you pronounce her name and interestingly these the samples we use shebnam used the samples that we meaning the scientific community used to determine that APOE4 was a genetic first genetic mutation to be shown to be involved in Alzheimer's formation. Duke has a bank of Alzheimer's brains, people brains from Alzheimer's patients and brains from controls. So we use the same tissue bank basically to look now at the role of epigenetics and particularly imprinting 
in, mm -hmm. in this uh, phenomena and, and <clears throat> found that, that we looked at, Catherine looked at blacks, African-American versus whites, European-Americans, whatever you wanna call the whites versus blacks. And interestingly, we found imprinted genes that were involved, but the vast majority of the changes in imprint control regions were found in the black population, three times more than in the white, which suggests that even though, and blacks tend to get Alzheimer's at a rate that's about two to three times above what uh, whites do. So we're both groups are getting Alzheimer's disease, but they're, it's like you're coming to to Washington, D.C., one's coming through one route and the other one's coming through another route and they both get to Washington, D.C., which is Alzheimer's, but they they come through different routes. And that's interesting and important because if indeed that replicates, then to screen, to diagnose, even to treat is gonna be potentially different for the two groups of people. Yeah, that's right. Now, whether that's true or not, I said it has to be replicated. This is the first shot over the bow, mm -hmm. um, but that's what we found. And interestingly, on top of that, there was one, one gene that was common in both groups, and that was an inflammasome gene, suggesting uh -huh. that it's, it's an inflammatory dis disorder. Sure. So, all right. So then what? So that's the, that's basically our findings. And not, you say, well, that's not, it's huge though, if it's correct. Yeah, it is. It, it, it will be, I mean, as this evolves, it will be game changing. I mean, I think your position would be that we all need to know what our imprintome looks like. And that we can make well, maybe we'll, not though. If you if you don't want to know this, you know, well, until we need to you learn can how do to something about it, Carrie, yeah. you maybe don't want to know. I don't right, know. Right, 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 right. But yeah, well, I mean, I guess we might be able to see what is possible to influence. I mean, we know that we can, in real time, as adults, have a favorable influence on our health span and lifespan you know, if we live in a, you know, in a certain way. So maybe, so maybe we've got the imprint on bias, but we're able to offset it in real time with, well, with certain commitments. Well, that's why I was interviewed for, in the journal Epigenomics, and I, I told, uh, Storm Johnson was the editor at that time that interviewed mm -hmm. me, and I said, I think of it, I think of epigenetics as a science of hope, and it's exactly yeah. what you're talking about that it's not absolutely uh, a sentence of bad health. You potentially can do some things even to the genes that are being changed in later on in life that might counteract some of these very early, more deterministic changes in the epigenome, particularly in imprinted genes. Yeah. Could be potentially overwhelmed to some degree, or at least negated to certain a, a, sure. a way that balances it out and doesn't make it quite as bad as it mm -hmm. would be if you had sort of did bad health type of things throughout your life yeah that's my guess well i mean you i wonder monitor it. yeah well like we i, I was I, you know in 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 the book that i wrote i just sort of waxed philosophically about my own family coming from poland you know we migrated to the u.s like you know many of us did 
probably because there was some sort of a food scarcity. You know, there was a there was a hardship reason that mm-hmm. brought us to to this to, to this to Cleveland, Ohio, and. Mm-hmm. You know, then my my grandparents opened delis and there was a lot of food and all sorts of abundance. And everyone in my family, if we're not really very intentionally doing interventions to control blood sugar uh, or in cardiovascular disease, that is our trajectory. And I and I wonder if there wasn't an influence in that, you know, in our time, in whatever struggles we were experiencing and, you know, our home country yeah well it's i mean it is possible you're talking about some, some transgenerational things coming through and the over or the orbicalyx work yeah we're the mm-hmm. yeah and i mean and then yeah so it would be i guess i, I but is that the imprint home or is the imprint home exclusively what's happening with the immediate parents Just remember the imprint home was only one part of it yeah I don't want to get people to think that this is the only thing it's right now what it's very important and it happens early and you can study it cl- as cleanly as we can study epigenetic changes in humans but it's only one portion of the epigenetic changes i don't i'm not saying that's the only thing there but it's the easiest thing for us to look at right now that are the most important genes so that's where you always start i mean why did we pick the agouti mouse because you could see the changes in fact, yes. Rob was talking about, and we were originally talking about looking at changes in in the in in uh, methylation of an of the IGF two uh, ICR. And right. I, I I remember we were discussing and said, yeah, well, if we did this, though, the problem is that the genomics people are primarily are going to say, even if you found a ten or fifteen percent difference between you know disease, let's say, versus controls at at the ICR level of methylation they're going to they're going to say well that's not biologically relevant right and i said so, well we're spending the rest of our life trying to trying to explain why a 10 or 15 percent change in an icr is biologically relevant so i said that's not where we want to start we want to start with something where you can link you know, methylation all the way to a disease susceptibility and show that you can manipulate this back and forth and not only change coat color and disease susceptibility but also have it linked directly to methylation changes Thus, the agouti. the agouti mouse. What was it? E. O. Wilson said that for every question, science question, there is a ma- there is a biological model system that's best for studying it, and for looking at the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility, which is what we were doing at that time. Actually, mm-hmm. the best model was the agouti mouse. For yeah. looking at the role of epigenetics in human disease, the best model is looking at the imprinted genes. Well, I've got a ton more questions on this, but we're, we're, we're just at, we're at time. I, so I'm incredibly excited to see where this goes. And um, we're working with, with, with Ryan over at, at True Diagnostic as well. And so he kind of keeps us, keeps us posted of the, you know, what's going on in the world of the imprint home. But I, I would imagine pretty soon we're going to all be able to measure our imprint homes and and um maybe not immediately i know you can't get it on the alumina the the, the alumina misses most of it i think but um quite a bit of it but you know yeah. the, the, but even as i said you know we got version one hopefully version two will have more icrs on it and as i said as we get the better idea of the methylome in human oocytes it will define of those 1400 or 1500 
ICRs better, which ones are truly juicy, juicy, good ones, and which ones maybe not so good. So, you know, that'll happen. And you think it's happening really pretty quickly. We'll yeah, be able to ha start to get this information real time and maybe make some lifestyle choices around perhaps yeah, our, and then you the biases. Monitor, you know, like, for example, with the imprint home, you could, and I mean, I don't know if it's possible, you put people on different diets or whatever, different things that you do, you can start asking them, well, does that change? We know what it was here. What is it when we do this for a half a year or a year or a week or whatever? Does it yeah. alter it? I don't know. Well, you seem, you, I mean, you said at the beginning that it's very reliably reproducible, but because it happened in the gamete, those changes were wrought in the gamete stage that it's reproducible through every cell. I mean, I, one would think that we really put a lot of effort into you know, continuing to maintain it. So we're not going to be necessarily changing the imprintome, but if the imprintome itself is regulatory for secondary gene expression, then we might be changing those associated oh, genes, right? That'll be a little harder to tease out, but it could be that that's the case. In other words, the ones that are primary, which I think, you know, the imprinted they're pretty are going to be primary. You could possibly get other changes in other more secondary things that are involved in metabolism stuff that can modify the negative effects let's say of the ones that we, the and not everything is going to be negative sometimes people are going to get be luck out yeah and they'll, it'll be yeah. positive right well that's why it would be kind of cool to study like centenarians imprint on yeah, right exactly. as a as an the example age, of aging if they're 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 lucky yeah right so what does it but, look like is is it is there is information for us something i mean it's not yeah. just luck yeah i don't right. think well, I mean, yeah, it looks like they have certain lifestyle habits and, you know, and, uh, you know, genetics and maybe epigenetics play a bigger role. You know, maybe the imprint on plays a bigger role in, in these centenarians well, yeah, and genetics. That can, be, that can be looked at now, can it? It's just very, it's very, very, very interesting. Wouldn't All right. That so, be an interesting experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, so, to me, that's more, that would be more interesting to look at right now, honestly, and to some degree, than its role in different diseases. And yeah, stuff. right. It's, so, it's very fundamental in why some people are, seem to be really healthy all the time, and some people really yeah. aren't. It would be nice for us to train our lens on what wellness maps out to. Yeah, exactly. Versus disease, <laughs> you yeah. know, where we're, we're really obsessed with sort of the disease process but let's look at what what, what wellness, wellness maps out to maps out. and have a you know and have a route for for us to take i um, think scientists always tend to think more on the negative side because we're so disease oriented <laughs> but on the other side nutritionists pro primarily i think look more at it the other way around you know health health wise stuff yeah if it's and well and there's a dearth of information here like we notice you can you, you know we because we always focus on disease, science focuses on disease, and so yeah, we need to we need to be looking at what 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 wellness, what resilience, what resilience looks like epigenetically. I mean, I'm very interested in that. And then can um, it be modified? Yeah, can you take the person who doesn't have that and right. influence it favorably? Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, the the when we look at offspring from uh, of Holocaust survivors, I mean. There, we know that there were patterns of resilience, but I don't think that we've really you, you, you sort of know that uh, phenotypically. I, or you know how, it, but but we don't know epigenetically 
necessarily, I think, what that looks like. But, you know, people survive with varying degrees or people have inherited varying degrees of, of, of imbalances from that original, you know, Holocaust cohort. So there's resilience and then there's vulnerability to, um, you know, some of the downstream trauma. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, it was great to talk to you. I, let me, I just, let me just ask you one more question. So you did, you were pretty strong in saying that the imprintome is stably reproducible or just stable over time in all of our cells, but it, it, maybe I misunderstood you. You do think there may be interventions and even lifestyle interventions that could in adulthood shift the imprint home. Possibly. I think okay. it's not going to be easy. I don't know, but you know, I'm going to say it this way. Many things that I've hypothesized in the area of epigenetics and have already written this written the paper in my brain were absolutely incorrect. <laughs> But you've had so some I, key rights, though. You've been you've been right in yeah, some. Yeah, but I, what I'm saying is, it's hard something to predict mm -hmm. uh, because we know so little about this whole game, in a way. You know how this is regulated and in the effect of the environment and stuff on this. That it's sometimes hard to really predict. You know, the, you you really have to go measure it. Even as I said, you know, with the work that we have with Alzheimer's disease, it needs to be replicated and, and we have to, we and other people need to look at it ultimately. And my guess is that some of these genes will fall out and some of them will stay. And the ones that stay are going to be probably involved in, in the formation of Alzheimer's disease. And now whether or not Blacks still have a greater uh, degree of epigenetic changes and in, in imprint control regions than whites, I don't know, but that's the way it'll evolve out. This is just the beginnings of the whole voyage. Yeah. Well, once we started again, started it 20 years ago by showing with the agouti mouse that the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility was due to epigenetics. And now we're trying to dis dissect it a little bit more and that we know it's epigenetic, but what are potentially the, the, the genes that are altered and are most labile and important in the different disease and health projection, um, uh, what do you call it? Projections, I guess, and, and journeys in our life. And how we can shift modify. them. Can we shift yep. them in real time? Yeah, so lots of questions, you but can, you can measure now, yeah. potentially, we couldn't do that before. So very exciting. I'm just thrilled that you're, you know, that you're doing this work, and that I that I got to catch up with you on it. And I'll just we'll, we'll be paying attention here. You know, just excited for you yeah, waiting it'll be for people us to... like yourself that'll be doing these types of studies and making hopefully some sense out of it. And it's going to be not be it won't be easy, but I can guarantee you one thing: it's going to be unbelievably exciting. Yeah, it I already mean, is. It's it's astonishing, actually. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jodel, thank you so much for your brilliance and your commitment to this work, and being so gracious with your time. You know, making time for for me and 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 my audience today. I just really appreciate it. Really appreciate my, you. My honor and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. As always, 
thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where because of my sponsors, I am able to bring you the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. Not everybody can be a sponsor on my platform, so I appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Rupa Health, Biotics Research, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic, and I can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at rupahealth.com, bioticsresearch.com, and integrativepro.com. And please let them know that you learned about them on New Frontiers. And if it's not too much to ask, I would really appreciate a thumbs up or a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.